Well, it's so good to be with you today. My name is Brian, and I love getting to preach through this Tough Question series. And today's question, I don't even know that I need to do much work to get you on board, because everybody has been wounded. Some of you come in feeling that today, and the question today that we want to tackle is, what do I do when I've been wounded? And where do I go? Where do I turn? And I feel like this question is such a big one, so practical, that we want to take two weeks to kind of take a different angle, a different angle both weeks. And today, we're really just going to address, uh, what does God tell me to do when I've been wounded that protects my heart, that heals my heart, that makes sure that my heart doesn't grow cold and callous? We've all been around people who have been wounded, who ended up wounding other people, right? We say hurt people, hurt people. We know that's true because bitterness can grow up inside of people and really bring them to ruin. And then those people have an impact on others. And so we're going to talk today about our heart issues. And then next week, we're going to talk about how can I be restored in a relationship with somebody else? What do I need to do to restore that broken relationship? And the Bible is such a beautiful resource. God has given us this great resource where he, we could have chosen a number of texts to unpack over the next couple of weeks. And so it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful gift that God has given this to us, that we go through some of these difficult questions. And before we jump all the way in, I, I do just want to say one quick word, one quick aside about being wounded. There are some wounds that maybe should not be wounds at all. You know what I'm talking about? Like I read about a political celebrity, which maybe those two words should never belong together, but a political celebrity who uh, recently uh, was asked to move two seats over in an airline. And she went on a complete Twitter rampage and just uh, going after the airline. And she even went after the lady who was seated where she thought she was supposed to be seated. And she tweeted this, immigrants take American jobs and seats on Delta too. I'm like, whoa, was that really necessary? And I'm thinking, I think this lady might have more issues than just the airplane seat, right? And it's easy for me to point at her, but sometimes I'm that guy. And I get really upset at something, even though I really should not be upset. Have you ever seen somebody at the elevator and they're just jamming the button over and over and over again? And you're thinking, I don't think they're really angry about the elevator. Something else is going on in in this guy's world, and he's just you know, uh, hitting the elevator button. And so I I do want to just step aside for a moment and say, sometimes we just need to ask, do I really need to be, do I need to be wounded about this or not? And maybe we even need to go to a godly and good friend and say, this happened. Am I just being really, really sensitive about this? And they might say, yeah, you are. You probably just need to move on. Okay. And then we move on from there. Maybe we just need to ask, would Jesus have taken it really personally? What about the Apostle Paul? Would he have gotten his you know, feathers in a ruffle about it? What about you know, my missionary friends who are overseas? Would they be really upset about this? And maybe just ask a few questions. And maybe we move on and say, okay, I kind of felt wounded, but I'm not really wounded. It, it has nothing to do with this issue. With that said, let's kind of push off from that shore of false wounds, of things that we just kind of make up in our mind, and let's actually move to the, to the ocean of real hurts and real wounds, okay? And we're just going to deal with those the rest of today. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, what we're talking about today is when we are wounded, we can miss the grace of God. In our lives, and this bitterness can grow up in us and ruin us if we don't know how to handle it, 
if we don't know how to allow God to handle it. And we can actually miss the grace of God in the midst of that. We can cause other people, make it easier for them to miss the grace of God too. True story. Bill and Lisa were married for eight years. And they wanted to have kids but had not been able to in their eight years. And one day Bill was at a, walking through a park and just by random chance, he met another lady. And that random meeting led to an affair. And that affair led to a pregnancy. And that pregnancy led Bill to go back to Lisa and say, having an affair with this woman, I'm leaving you, I want a divorce, and by the way, we're expecting. Lisa wrote, it was at that point in my life that I just assumed my life was over, that I had nowhere else to turn. That's the kind of deep wound that can ruin a life forever. And then we look at Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. Asking God to forgive the very people who were killing him. Later, we would see Stephen being stoned by, amongst others, Paul was there. And we see Stephen saying, don't hold their sins against them. How can somebody do that? How can somebody go from being so wounded to being so healthy spiritually that they could offer forgiveness in that moment? How, how could anyone overcome their wounds enough to move on in life after what Lisa experienced? If you have your Bibles, there's a beautiful text in Genesis chapter 50 where we want to learn some principles today about how we cannot be ruined by the wounds in our life and how God can actually hold our heart and bring us to healing. So there was a man named Abraham. God blessed the world through Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 boys. The second to youngest was named Joseph. And the text says that Jacob loved his son Joseph more than the other boys. Anybody have a parent like that? Uh, Anybody want to send an angry text to one of your siblings later since I mentioned it? That was Jacob and Joseph, okay? And Joseph made matters worse. He tattled on his older brothers. The text tells us that one time. We also know that he had this dream, and he he told his brothers about his dream, how he was going to be better than all of them. Little note, if you are having relationship problems with somebody, and you have a dream that you end up way better than them, just kind of keep that to yourself. You know, no, no reason to share that, no reason to post it anywhere. But So Joseph made matters worse. He had been a bit of a brat, but he had not done anything to warrant what happened. His brothers were out tending the, the animals the, um, one day, and they see Joseph coming, and he's wearing that special coat his dad had given him. Some would even call it technicolor. And here Joseph comes with his pretty little coat on, and the brothers are growing jealous, and the jealousy boils into this murderous plot. And they take their own brother, and they throw him into a well, and they're going to leave him to die. And one of the brothers at least has the sense to say, well, we should at least sell him. Look, there's these people going by, these human traffickers, these slave owners. Let's sell our brother to them and just let him be a slave the rest of his life. How much do you have to hate your brother to do that? They get him up out of, well, they sell him, pocket the money, and then they tell their dad, we found his coat covered in blood some 
wild animals must have killed him. Of course, his dad is distraught. And you would think, well, Joseph's life is over. Ah, it's not. In fact, he goes to Egypt, and God blesses everything he touches. And before long, he's serving a man named Potiphar, who's one of the highest-ranking officials in all of Egypt. And uh, things are going very well until Potiphar's wife begins flirting with Joseph. Joseph is a man of integrity, and he runs away, but she still concocts a little story and say, says that Joseph initiates it. And so Potiphar's wife, or Potiphar believes his wife, and they throw Joseph into prison, but the text still says that God blesses him. Imagine that. You might be in prison and God blessing you. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around that one, isn't it? And even in prison... Everything Joseph touches turns to gold, it seems. Soon he is put in charge of things there. And then Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, has this troubling dream, and no one knows. And he, he goes, and somebody says, hey, what about Joseph? And they go to Joseph, and Joseph is able to interpret the dream. And soon, once again, he's out of prison, and he's the second highest in command of the entire Egyptian civilization. And Pharaoh pretty much says, hey, you're in charge, man. I trust you. And so it could not be going better. And, and because of a dream, Joseph has warned, seven years of famine are going to follow the seven years of plenty, so we better start saving up. And Pharaoh says, okay, put a system in place. And Joseph does so for seven years. They build storehouses, and they pile up the, the grain, and they begin saving. And sure enough, a famine comes, and the text says, that all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So Joseph had saved the world. And some of those people who came to Egypt to buy grain because they were starving were Joseph's very brothers. Plot twist. <laughs> and, and Joseph sees them and realizes who they are, and they are still wrecked with guilt still remembering what his face looked like when they sold their brother, and they've been living with this lie for all this time. And Joseph is just trying to keep it together. He's very emotional. He has to leave the room at, at one point, but he goes, and finally he reveals to his brothers, hey, it's me. Of course, they think he's going to kill us or throw us in prison or worse, or who knows what he's going to do. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm glad to see you. I'd really like to see Dad. And they can hardly believe it. And so, fast forward, and I hope you can take time later just to read this whole story. It's just kind of, you read it on the edge of your chair. But fast forward, and he's reunited with his father, and the family is together, and Pharaoh is good to all of them. And then Jacob, the father, dies. And those old feelings of guilt and shame come back to the older brothers. And they begin to be afraid. What if, what if Joseph really isn't going to forgive us anymore. He was just waiting until dad died. And so that's where I want to pick up our text. So Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. 
His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. And here's what we want to land on today. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. They can't imagine. Derek Kidner in his commentary says, Each sentence of Joseph's reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. Did you hear what he said? He said, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I'll provide for you and your children. And then the text says, he reassured and spoke kindly to them. Let me kind of paraphrase for us. What what do you do when you've been wounded? Number one, you leave all the righting of wrongs to God. Number two, you see God's hand in man's wickedness. Number three, You repay evil with practical affection, with kindness. And number four, you forgive as God forgave you. It's a reassurance of your forgiveness, even 70 times seven. So that first response of when you've been wounded is to leave all the righting of wrongs to God. We want to right the wrongs ourselves. We want to get revenge. That's what we want to do. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes about a man named Alexander, and he said that Alexander had done much harm to me. But then he says, the Lord will judge him for what he has done. What was Paul saying here? I'm leaving the righting of wrongs to God. I'm not going to take revenge myself. And this is Joseph's attitude, saying, I am not in the place of God. I don't sit on the judgment chair. It implies that God is the one who will ultimately dish out justice in his perfect way. And I'm not suggesting that authorities and government institutions and law enforcement ought not serve out justice. We need the judicial system to do that and everyone to do that. And when it doesn't happen, there's lots of pain. But personally, you and I, we have no right to stay mad, no right to get back and to stew and to hold the grudge. The brothers were afraid that Joseph was holding that grudge. Do you know who has the right to hold a grudge? Anybody have a right to hold a grudge? Because if you're raising your hand, you're saying you're perfect. Because only perfect people have a right to hold a grudge. I mean, absolutely perfect people. If you're perfect, by every means, hold grudges. But if you're not, you don't have the right. John Perkins says... Arrogance is the food of grudges. Remove it, and the grudge will die. Think about Joseph. What would become of him if he would have held a grudge? I don't know what would have happened. Would he have ended up a drunk in prison or in some ditch? Or would he have still attained power and then used his power to abuse and mistreat anyone below him? I can see both scenarios playing out. We don't know. But instead... He got rid of his grudge, and the whole world was better for it. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter all about the greatest virtue of them all, love. It says, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Some translations say, love is not irritable. Anybody irritable? Irritable people hold grudges. 
but not people with love. We, we are kind, and we don't keep a list of all of the, of the wrongs, and we don't keep track of everything because that brings about grudges and the bitterness that God wants us to leave behind. So the first thing, our first response when we are wounded, when, when we feel this hurt, is to realize I am not responsible to take out revenge and justice. I leave all of that to God. Number two, we see God's hand in man's wickedness. Even in the midst of man's evil, we still see God's hand at work. Kyle Eidelman encourages people to reframe the old question, what is the reason for my hurt, for my wounds, to rephrase that with, what is the purpose? You see the difference? One is often full of bitterness, but one is looking for, wow, how could God redeem this bad situation? When Joseph meets his brothers, I mean, they're terrified. But he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. Does this excuse his brother's actions? No. Does it mean that God wants you just to live however you want and he'll make good of it? No. Does, does it mean that we forget about sin and it's no big deal and God doesn't? No, I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying it takes a higher view of one's circumstances. It's not just down low of here I am and these bad things happen to me and I'm stuck in, a, in the middle of it. It could be these bad things happen to me, but God has a plan that I haven't even figured out yet. God has a plan to redeem this bad situation, to make something good of it that I could have never done on my own. When you read the scriptures, it's just full of story after story. Something bad happens to someone, God does something good with it. And God does that in our lives too. It's so frustrating when we can't figure it all out. And I guess that's where faith comes in, right? We say, God, I still trust that you can take this bad situation, what somebody did to me, and redeem it for good. The third response when we've been wounded is to repay evil with practical affection, with kindness. MLK said, the chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Annihilation is kind of what it feels like when you're in an argument that just goes on and on and on. It's what it feels like when we look and in, in, in two groups of people have just been hating each other for so long. Have you ever been around children and they start arguing about something and it and you feel like if you don't interfere, it will just never end. Like it could go on for 80 years, and it would still be going on. And finally, somebody steps in and is like, hey, drop it. Knock it off. We say those things because we see the cycle going and going. And by the way, adults do the same thing. You remember the old story of the Hatfield and McCoys? Do you remember why they started hating each other? Why they started doing things and stealing and even killing each other? That, and it lasted for decades? A pig. It started with a pig. Do you think that when that first thing happened with the pig and they were mad at each other, they thought, man, I bet you History Channel is going to do a documentary on us one day. It's going to get that epic. Our feud is going to be told in sermons and stories and books for generations to come. No, they were just ticked off about a pig. And then it boiled over and over and over and over, it takes a pretty mature person to be kind to someone in the face of hate. And Jesus said, love your enemies. He did not even say ignore your enemies. That's different. 
He said, love your enemies. And love has to have some traction to it, some action to it. What if, what if, I don't remember if Hatfield or McCoy stole the first pig, but what if the offended would have just said, you can have it, and here's another one too. The whole thing ends right there. But no, because they could not love, it boiled over. And that's the beauty and the wisdom. And sometimes we think, man, it seems so hard to love my enemies. And Jesus is looking at the whole world and saying, oh, but you don't know how much good it will do. You don't know how it will break the cycle of violence and hate. That when you actively love someone, it breaks all of that up. That when you don't just ignore them or passively take shots at them or walk, but you actually do something kind for them. Oh, it seems so backwards, so upside down, so counterintuitive, everything we don't want to do. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And in the text, we see that Joseph was kind to his brothers. He took care of their families and the kids. He took care of everyone, that practical affection. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed as a young lady, and she she went on to uh, become this fantastic author and speaker and even painter. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture or a video of her actually painting with her mouth, holding the paintbrush in her mouth, and these beautiful pictures. And she went on to overcome in so many ways. But for her, I believe it was a spiritual choice to be loving and to be joyful. It wasn't just by accident. She tells a story of one time. She's speaking at a conference, and they're in uh, uh, like a, a lady's restroom, and there's a lady uh, fixing her makeup in, in the bathroom mirror, and she sees Johnny there sitting in her wheelchair, and she says, Johnny, I don't know how you do it. You're just always so happy, so joyful, so put together. I, I wish I could have your joy. And Johnny turned to her and said, oh, sweetie. I don't have joy. And she says, I don't have any of that on my own. And she said, when I I get up in the morning and my husband leaves, I have to wait an hour for the nurse to come. And I know that when that caretaker comes, they'll have to clean me and bathe me, put my clothes on me. And I think to myself, God, I can't do this one more time. I am done. I can't handle this whole routine anymore. But then she prays to the Lord this, oh Lord, I don't have the strength to face this routine one more day. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day, but you do. May I have your joy. May I have your strength. God, I need you desperately. Maybe we need to quit looking for joy inside of ourselves and just saying, God, Can I borrow yours today? And again, and again. You see, it's a spiritual decision to show practical affection to other people, to give a warm smile to someone else, to love other people. Pete Wilson says, what you inhale is what you exhale. And if you're inhaling bitterness, jealousy, and frustration, and anger, it's going to come out of you as well. But if you're inhaling grace and forgiveness and joy, the things that can only come from God, then that's what you're going to exhale onto other people as well. So we repay evil with practical affection and with kindness. 
And for some of you, that's maybe your action item leaving today. There's a fourth, a fourth response to being wounded, and it's to forgive as God forgave you. E.B. White wrote, grace can be dissected like a frog, but it dies in the process. See, I, I want you to study about grace. I want you to learn about grace. I want you to talk about grace. But ultimately, the way we really understand grace is to practice it, is to forgive somebody. And then God teaches us so much in that moment of here's what it's like. And God understands the pain that it can feel like, how difficult it can be to forgive another human being, someone who's hurt you. The Bible even says that when we're asked how many times, Jesus, do we have to forgive somebody? Maybe just three times, because that's a lot. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Even 70 times seven. In other words, forever. You just keep forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. And some of you have been wounded in such a way that every day you have to wake up and choose to forgive that person again. Every long day. And you understand that 70 times 7 thing of just over and over and over. When Joseph's brothers come to him and they think maybe his forgiveness has expired, that now that dad has died and he feels this grief, he's going to be overcome by this bitterness against us. And Joseph's like, no, 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 no. My grace is still good. My forgiveness is still good. Now, I'm not suggesting that we turn a blind eye when someone is abusing us or, or mistreating us in such a way that we don't set up boundaries in our lives. I, I don't want to suggest that and don't mis- misinterpret me. But when it comes to the grace of forgiveness, God says you just keep forgiving. And you may need to go get some help to help have somebody help you forgive and walk with you to figure out what it means to forgive and still have a boundary in your life. That's difficult and it's messy. And it's why so few people do that. I need to tell you the rest of the story about Bill and Lisa. Bill was the one who had an affair and cheated on his wife, never able to have children for eight years, and has this affair, and soon this woman with whom he has the affair is pregnant, and Bill leaves Lisa, and she feels like the world has ended. But the world did not end for Lisa. God did something amazing in her life. And that woman the one that slept with her husband and that welcomed her husband to leave her into her home, this is what she writes. Do you know what Lisa did after she saw her life come crashing down? She called me to say she did not hate me and that while she knew she would go through very tough times, her prayer was that somehow we could all still be family. She asked me if she could be Aunt Lisa to the baby. I couldn't comprehend it. All these years later, I still can't. How? Who has such strength, such grace, such mercy? Bill and I deserved her wrath, but we received friendship and love. Bill still doesn't know Jesus, but Lisa and I do. And together, we pray for him. There are no words for her forgiveness in my life. Only Jesus. I want to tell you, that you can read a lot of self-help books and you can do a lot of things on your own. But when it comes to your wounds, regardless of how anybody else rates them on some scale, they are your wounds and they are difficult. And you need the power of Jesus in your life 
to help you heal. I can't do it for you. A book can't do it for you. A, a process and doing, you know, following a bunch of steps. Ultimately, you need the God of the universe. You need the Holy Spirit in your life to help you overcome the wounds that you felt. And it's only by receiving the love of Jesus into our lives that we are able to overcome the wounds in our lives and begin to forgive other people. Revere and Ruango saw his family hacked down during the Rwandan genocide. He lived, but he was maimed and left a homeless refugee. And in the midst of despair, one sudden discovery suddenly gave him hope. And he wrote this, This Christ, disfigured, bruised, hacked away, pierced, cut, looks like me. He looks like a young Tutsi from the Bugani hillside, dismembered on April 20th, 1994, by men who should have been his brothers. He looks like the victims of the Tutsi genocide. He looks like all victims of all genocides, of all massacres, of all crimes, of all wrongs. The prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities. You see that our sins, our wrongs, our evil, all of those, and Jesus paid the price for them. So what do you do when you are wounded? I'll tell you what you do. You thank Jesus for forgiving you. You go to Jesus and say, God, you forgave me, and I did not deserve it. In fact, your offense against God is greater than any offense someone has committed against you. That's the truth. And God's grace in your life is greater than your grace can be in anybody else's life. That's true. And because God's grace is greater in my life than it can ever be for how I forgive someone else, God compels me to forgive and to let go of my wounds that I want to hold on to. And in letting go... God saves my life from ruin. He saves me from a life of bitterness and jealousy and anger and deceit and control and mistreatment of other people. And God can save your life too. What do you do when you've been wounded? You go to the healer and you realize, God, I have wounded you and you forgave me. By dying on a cross, you paid for my sins. I wronged you and you forgave me. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, we would love for today to be the day in which you are baptized into, uh, uh, dead to your old life, coming up out of the water, a new person in Christ, that Jesus does this work on the inside of you that transforms your whole being, where you can forgive other people as he has forgiven you. We would love to visit with you about that. We'd love to talk to you even today. If during this next song or at the end of the service, you'd like to come up to the front, some folks would love to pray with you and talk with you. We'd love to find a time to meet with you if you would like. We know your wounds are deep, but we know Jesus' wounds were deeper. And he cares for you and loves you, and he forgives you. And he wants to help you forgive other people and live beyond your wounds too, to an abundant life. Would you stand and let me pray for us? God, we know that our wounds are deep and we're broken so often and we feel anger and 
bitterness and jealousy and all of these things that the enemy wants to use to destroy us. But we don't want to live there anymore. We want to recognize that you have forgiven us for wounding you, for sinning, for going against what you had planned for our lives. And you've forgiven us and you are perfect. You're the only one who has a right to hold a grudge. And yet you just offer grace. So God, we say thank you for your grace. And God, we want to see your grace transform us so that we can be full of grace for others and we can live a life full of joy and love and graciousness and courage that you've called us to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.